from Genesis chapter 14, verses 10 through 24. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went on their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshel and of Anir. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobreth, the north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. May be seated. Before I get into this, I just want to, I, I forgot one announcement, important announcement. Um, tomorrow is the, I believe, the first session of uh, men's, bio, men's study on Wild at Heart over at Dave Dow's house. If you are a man, you want more information on that, like where his house is, you can see Dave Dow following this morning's service. It is a great study about how every man needs a challenge in their life. Um, they need a battle. They need, a, they need to test themselves. With that said... What has been your greatest battle, challenge, or test in your life? You know, in tests, we think of school. We think of a particular difficult teacher who put the majority of the grade on that final project, that semester test. I remember in school, we had an English teacher. He was so difficult that when we all went to college, we were like, whew, this is easy. We, for, our, for our 10th grade project, we had a 10-page paper and one page had to be E-primed. And you're probably asking yourself, what does E-prime mean? No two B verbs. Try, to doing that, try doing that for a page when you're in 10th grade. It was very difficult, but we rose to the test, and we either failed or we succeeded. Or maybe, um, or maybe, when you, maybe you're thinking of challenge. You know, I hope you make challenges, mentally, mental, physical, and spiritual challenges, a part of your life. It's how we grow. I remember when I was preparing for my first marathon, it was a challenge. I had to learn how to be comfortable being uncomfortable, which is one of the weirdest phrases you ever hear, but that's where growth happens. Become comfortable being uncomfortable. When it comes to battles, you, already know, you probably already know what I'd have to say about this. Tests and challenges are hard, but a battle is something different altogether. Distressing. Some of you who are in the military have probably actually been in actual battles with bullets flying. In each of these, there is a lot at stake. But I want to remind you today that the battle belongs to the Lord. 
I don't know what you're going through today. You're probably going through a war at home, a war at work, but the battle belongs to the Lord. You, may, you might be prepared for the battle today, but are you prepared for the victory? The true test comes actually following victory rather than in the battle itself because most people fail after they have victory. This quote gets attributed to Oscar Wilde and also to the poet George Bernard Shaw, which is, in this world, there are two great tragedies. One is getting what one wants and the, the one is not getting what one wants, and the other is getting it. The way you act in victory ends up being the harder test. We are going through this series about the founder of the Jewish people, the founders of the Jewish people, the people whom the Messiah came through. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, they are mentioned as part of the cloud of witnesses that God is not ashamed to be called their God. In fact, in many ways in the Old Testament, when the people of God would differentiate their God from all other gods, they would say he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. These individuals, they are known as the patriarchs or the male founders of the Jewish people. So like a TV show, let me say this, last time on Patriarchs. Last time on Patriarchs chapter 13, I talked about worldview and about the way we look at the world matters. Do we see through natural eyes or supernatural eyes? When you hear or see stories on the news, what are you filled with? Are you filled with fear? Are you filled with rage? Are you filled with hope, excitement? Whatever your response is, it has everything to do with the way you see the world. Some people are so committed to their worldview that they will obtusely ignore anything that does not fit into it. A great example of this, I totally had forgotten about this until the other day somebody mentioned their part in it. And it was um, a number of years ago, um, there was a group of Catholic students who went to the Capitol for the March for Life uh, protest. And uh, they're from a coveting, covet, what, I can't say the name of their, their Catholic school that went there. And online on Twitter was just this little clip of uh, this Native American gentleman banging his drum right by this uh, young man. And um, everybody looked at that and like on both sides of the aisle were condemning this kid. They're like, he's racist. He has this attitude. He's arrogant. I looked at that and I've worked with teenagers and I recognize the look on his face. He's uncomfortable and he doesn't know what to do. And everybody jumped the gun. They wanted, they wanted to condemn this individual. And then it came out that um, he did nothing wrong. Him and, his, him and his class were just sitting there waiting for their bus. And they were being harassed by this group called the Black Hebrew Israelites, um, who are a racist um, organization. And they were on purposely harassing these young men. And then the uh, guy with the drum, he was harassing them as well, getting in their face, banging that drum. And all of a sudden, everybody's tone kind of changed. Some people, they just doubled down. They didn't care what the actual reality was. They wanted to get, you know, that catharsis anger out on this person. And I remember this recently because one of the people who had condemned these kids was uh, Beth Moore. And Beth Moore, um, somebody had brought this up and uh, somebody reminded those who were, who, were, um, who were mentioning this that she had actually apologized to them. And I thought what she said, though, was very interesting in this recent um, apology, which was, her recent uh, statement was that she decided to believe the evidence of her eyes. And my, 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 when I saw that, I was like, it's because you weren't see, you were just seeing through the vision you wanted to see it as. You saw what you wanted to see. 
And you didn't care what the reality was. You, you just wanted to feel the way that you wanted to feel. Man, you feel bad now because the tide has turned and public opinion has turned. But there's obviously something wrong with your eyes. Probably something very much like Lot's eyes. Now the Bible says, the Bible says distinctly that Lot was a righteous man. But Lot didn't do everything righteously. Last week I told you in verse 10 of chapter 13 that it says that Lot lifted up his eyes when he decided when he and his, where he, he and his family would live. Abram, his uncle, very generously told him that if you pick the left, I'll go to the right. You pick the right, I'll go to the left. You get first pick. Where do you want to live? Where do you want your people to live? So he lifts up his eyes and he sees the Jordan Valley and it's like, it's like Eden. It looks wonderful. We could prosper there. It's by these major cities. You may have heard of these cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he decides to encamp around those. He didn't see or didn't seem to care that the men of Sodom were already making a name for themselves as great sinners before the Lord. But here's my question to you. How do you see opportunity in your life? Do you consider spiritual matters first or last, or do they even factor in? How do you see the world around you? Abram. Abram, we've started seeing such a major shift in Abram's life over these past couple of weeks. When he was in Egypt, he saw through natural eyes. He left the the place of promise, the land of promise, to go to Egypt because he thought it would be easier. Well, it wasn't easier. In fact, he convinces his wife to tell everybody around there that she's his sister, But now he's seeing things through different eyes. He's starting to see things through the Lord's eyes. It's like that song, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, but Savior thou art. God then, once Abram separates from Lot, God tells Abram in chapter 13 to lift up his eyes and to look around. He tells him of the promises and the covenant that he will make with Abram. Though he has no children right now, his children would be as vast as the sand on the seashore. Like the song that was inspired by an English lad who was kidnapped and enslaved by the Irish who is then convinced to go back to the Irish as a missionary and would one day be called the apostle to the Irish, St. Patrick. He decides he will see the world through different eyes. He'll see it through God's eyes. Do you see through natural or supernatural eyes? And now we are on to chapter 14. Chapter 14 is a chapter of a lot of firsts. In fact, I was going to preach the entire chapter today, but after I got done writing my sermon on uh, on Thursday, um, I was past 12 pages. Just to let you know, a typical sermon for me, which lasts about an hour, is around seven and eight pages. So that was going to be probably around a two-hour sermon. And you guys are wonderful. I don't see many of you falling asleep. Um, but you guys are wonderful. I thought, I better, not, I, better not, I better not push it. We can just do half the chapter today, have the other half next week. But this is a chapter of a lot of firsts. Chapter 14 has a couple of firsts in here. It's, a, it's, a, it's the first time the word Hebrew is mentioned. Abram is the first time he's called a Hebrew. The word Hebrew means to pass over. The, um, means to pass over. He was probably called a Hebrew because he was a sojourner, meaning he was a stranger in a strange land. He was passing through Ur the Chaldees, then Egypt, and now throughout that land. So he was known as a Hebrew, one who passes over. We also have 
this swath of destruction by these four kings from the north. And their path of destruction that, we, that Becca read about right here, and I'm, I'm so glad she read it because these are hard to pronounce names. So I'm like, all you today. Um, their path of destruction from the north mirrors the Israelites' journey from Egypt to the promised land. So those who are reading about this um, or hearing this from Moses as he's writing it are like, wait, that's the same path we went through. That's the way that God orchestrates things. Everything is according to God's plan. We also have, we also have the first war being mentioned in the Bible. The first war. So you might ask, or you think of the song, War. <laughs> what is it good for? I'm going to tell you what it's good for. Um, there are two wars here in chapter 14. One is unjust and the other is just. One is for conquest, greed, and thievery. The other is to rescue family. War is not always evil. Exodus 15.3 tells us that the Lord is a warrior. In Revelation, Jesus comes back and he makes war with those who oppose him. There is fire in his eyes and a sword in his mouth. We are to live at peace, if possible, as far as it depends on us with everyone. But I'm sure everybody here has a story of a person you tried to live at peace with. As far as it depended on you, they didn't want peace. That's why Jesus tells us we are to love our enemies instead of hate them. We are to live, to live at peace if possible as far as it depends on us with everyone. Some just don't want peace and it doesn't depend on us. So we love them anyway. If there is a time to fight. Pacifism is not a biblical mandate. Ecclesiastes tells us that there is a time for war. The Bible gives us guidelines for just wars. There's a time to fight. There's a time to fight for what's precious to you. But most of our fighting is done on our knees in prayer. For our battle is not a physical one, but a spiritual one. The battle, the, this battle, the spiritual battle, it will not end until the lake of fire and the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. As we get into chapter 14, there is a lot at stake, pun intended. Unfortunately, Lot is now living in Sodom, and he and his family and their wealth is taken or stolen, and he is to be sold into slavery. There is a lot at stake for Abram as well, pun intended. Lot's family is Abram's family. How many of you know that blood is thicker than water? If you grew up with siblings, you know that no matter how much you might fight with each other, Nobody better dare lay a hand on one of your siblings because then it gets real. At my, at my brother's wedding, um, I, was, I was the best man. And I said in there, a lot of people say they fight with their siblings, but I say that unless you've drawn blood, you've only had a disagreement. <laughs> but I remember one time this person ambushed my brother and I was seeing red. And I, I'm not saying that like a metaphor. I was literally seeing red at the corners of my vision. Abraham has a lot. He's, there's a lot at stake here for Abraham because it is his family. It is also not to mention he has his wealth at stake because what do these, what do these coalition of four kings do? They've taken everybody's stuff. His life is at stake to get involved. Worse yet, his very soul is at stake because in victory he could become just like these pagan kings. 
doing nothing also risked his soul. Engaging in this fight, Abraham risked becoming just like the other kings involved here in the verses Becca just read. He is a man of means, but the spoils of war would put him in a whole nother income bracket. If what Abraham really desires on this earth is a plot of land, this will put him in the perfect spot to gain the land he wants and the wealth he wants. We have examples of other times in history where somebody comes to the aid of another person or any kind of conquest, conquest, they decide, I'm taking over this land. This is my land now. Abram will refuse to do this. You are at war. You are at war, and you have three armies arraigned against you, not just one. Each one is much bigger than the alliance of the four kings. They wish to steal, kill, and destroy So you're here today and you're like, Pastor Jason, I haven't done anything. How do I have three mortal enemies who are looking to destroy me? Well, one, you have the devil and his angels. Satan and his angels. They were the, he was the enemy of our first father and our first mother and they didn't know it. The snake is in the garden speaking to Eve. They have no idea that they're at mortal peril right now. He does not have their best in mind. He is their enemy. But They didn't realize that until it was too late, until they were kicked out of the garden. May you not have the same naivete in your life to believe that you are not at war, that there is not a spiritual explanation of the things going on in your life either, that you are not for you to forget about putting on the armor of God. Your second enemy, the one who wants to steal, kill, and destroy from you, is this world. I don't mean the planet. I don't mean people, but I mean the culture of this world. And every generation, the culture has been fallen. When I went to college, the big debate was about um, pre-modern, modern, post-modern thought. And we went over all these things. And I just said, aren't these all just fallen world systems? None of them are good. We're called to a different world, to a different kingdom. This world, the, the culture of this world hates the Lord. And if you love him, it can't have you, and it hates you too. This is easy to say. It's much different than when you are starting to battle against this world system, and you start getting people you love and know calling you, and breathing fire down your neck. See, in the state of Iowa right now, we've got two bills going to the state senate. One defending marriage, one defending life. And it was easy to be behind these things when we had no chance of these things going through. But now that they are, people who are proposing these, people who are standing on this, are coming under such great scrutiny, death threats, people threatening to come to their place with a gun. But God has not called us to be cowardly, but to be courageous. So can I say this? Even from the lectern right here, I'm in support of these. And I'm behind those who are behind these. Third, this is the big plot twist yourself, your sinful nature. It looks to kill your witness. It looks to kill your witness. You tell other people, yes, I love Jesus. I have a relationship with Jesus. And then you're, then you're, at the, you're in the marketplace. You're over at Hy-Vee and things are not going the way they should. They ring you up wrong. And all of a sudden you start getting into the flesh. And all of a sudden instead of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, it's fits of rage. And this stupid cashier, they did the wrong thing. And you start breathing fire at them. And other people see you and they're like, you're a Christian? Your own sinful nature that convinces you, oh, I can date like the rest of the world dates. 
You know, we can do whatever we want right here, and then other people, you're, you're going to tell them about Jesus Christ. Our own sinful nature undermines our witness, so let's be aware of that. It's our enemy. It's our sinful nature, and we'll look to kill our witness. It'll look to steal from us our witness. It looks to kill our witness. It looks to kill us physically. If we included every death that was a direct connection to a person's actions, so we talk about heart disease, having an unhealthy addiction to food, bad, deciding to drive when we've had too many drinks, things like this. If we talked about all those things being suicide, suicide would be number one cause of death every single year. Nothing would even touch it. Our own sinful nature looks to destroy, worst of all, our fellowship with the Lord. You have so much at stake this morning. And that is one of the most precious things in all of the universe. Because you can have everything. You can have the whole world. But if you lose your soul, what does that gain you? If you, dear Christian, lose your fellowship with the Lord, where do you turn when you get that call in the middle of the night? Where do you turn when things are falling apart around you? That's your third enemy. You are at battle too. As we look at the very first war mentioned in Scripture, remember, you are at war, but the battle belongs to the Lord. As we go through this very first, uh, the, the rest of this chapter, we see, we see three different groups of people. We have kings, we have, we have the innocent bystander, and we have the righteous Abram. Let's go with the first one, when kings go to war. Starting in verse 1 right here, I'm not going to read every verse right here, hard to pronounce names, and uh, Becca already did that for me. But let me put this into perspective, because I was reading this again this week, and like I was telling my, I texted my friend, I was like, I need prayer right now, and I'm just tired, I don't have really good concentration. I had to outline who these kings were, what they did, and how they fit into the rest of the story. But let me give you the basic overview here. You have four kings from the north, who are then swathed, of terror into the south. They're destroying every place they come across, and those they don't destroy, they enslave by making them client properties. They give them a, a, um, a, um, a tribute once a year. They're under the auspice, they're under the control of these four kings. It is a, a north versus south, but it's not a civil war. But it is of city-states. This is long before you have empires of multiple different peoples into one. In the, in the ancient world, the rule, the rule of thumb really was the city-state, meaning the city was the state. And they may have had other allies and everything around them, but it was really the city that was the state. We see this with the Greeks, with uh, the city of Sparta, the city of Athens. They were nations in and of themselves. They had their own kings. And we talk about, once again, we'll talk about like Greece in the ancient world. Nobody... Uh, in those times, had a concept of Greece as a nation. They may have called themselves the Achaeans, going back to uh, a shared nationality, but not of Greece. It was different city-states, and they recognized their own kind of sovereignty with this. Um, this was the same way here at this place where we're in the Old Testament. Every city we have here is a nation in and of itself, and these four kings are of four cities who have now got, have, have uh, collaborated together they learned the wrong lessons from the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, God says they are one, and now nothing will be, nothing will be impossible for them. 
We read that and we think no great wonder would be impossible for them to create. No, no great horror would be impossible for them to commit. These four have banded together. What do they do? They don't look to enrich their own people, build aqueducts and roads. No, they go on the war path. These four kings from the north, they sweep down, destroy, or take over everything in their path. As we read further on here in chapter 14, we see there are five client kings, five client nations who then rebel after 12 years. In verse 4, 12 years they had served um, Kilimander, but in the 13th year they rebelled. And what that means is, once again, they, they no longer want to pay this tribute. It's not noble. They are not the good guys in this fight. In the 12th year of their conquest, five of the client nations, they rise up against the four other nations. Two of those cities we know by heart, Sodom and Gomorrah. It goes without saying they are not the American Revolution. They are just tired of paying that tribute. They want to be king. They want to be king, in fact, not just in name. There's archaeologist evidence of this, of this war as well. Archaeologist Nelson uh, Gullick documented the destruction uh, left by these kings, those four kings from the north. He said, quote, I found that every village in their path had been plundered and left in ruins, and the countryside was laid waste. The population had been wiped out or led away into captivity. For hundreds of years thereafter, the entire area was like an abandoned cemetery, hideous, unkept, with all, with all its monuments scattered and strewn in pieces on the ground. Nothing will be impossible for them. These are those four kings, these five kings are going to battle, but there is no good guy in this war. While the story of the five rebellious kings sounds romantic and heroic, I would like to point out that there is no good guy here, just bad guys. Sodom and Gomorrah are not the good moral bunch. The other cities were no better. There is just shades, not of gray, but of sin. And so many wars throughout all of history followed that formula. It's just sin on top of sin. Interest against interest, not a good motive against an evil motive like we have here with Abram trying to, rescue his, trying to rescue his family member, but most wars follow that formula of just sin on top of sin. I had a friend who is, uh, he was really interested in this uh, book series, and he says, it's, it, it's good because there's no good guys or bad guys in it. And I was, uh, the way I grew up, that's the way I was told to see the world. And I was like, you're wrong. There's only bad guys in this. And you're wrong to think this is new. That was the rule. Lord of the Rings is the exception to the rule. The rule of even like fantasy stories or semi-realistic stories would be that of the Trojan War. I don't know how many of you read Iliad and the Odyssey. My condolences if you had. I did as a teenager. It took me forever because even translated into English, it's not English. And um, you're re I'm reading this and uh, it's like, I, I, it drove me insane because I was like, okay, everybody's just so wicked and evil. And then there's all these people caught in the middle. If you don't know, let me give you a little refresher. The whole reason this huge, huge war in the Greek world was because the, the king and queen of Sparta and the prince of Troy were involved in a love triangle. So everybody gets to die. 
And I was, I was like, I don't know if everybody sees it this way when they read, when they read the Iliad and the Odyssey, because I'm just thinking about all the poor people who are involved, who now have to travel across to see, to fight because three people couldn't get along and handle it themselves. That's how most war stories are. It's just evil on top of evil. So this is, there's no good guys in here. It's four against five, the five upstart kings, the five rebellious kings, against the four conquering kings. They meet in this valley, Asidium, which is right by the Dead Sea. The Sea of Salt, I think, in some of our translations call it. And it's still there today. So if you go to the Middle East, you can go to about where this place is at. Not only do these five kings, they have the advantage of at least numbers as far as the kings go are concerned. We don't know about actual numbers. But they also have the home field advantage. But no matter how many advantages one side has, it doesn't matter if you don't have discipline among the soldiers in your force. So these five kings, they lose. In verse 10, now the valley of Sidium was full of bitumen pits. Read that as tar pits. Like the ones like woolly mammoths and stuff got stuck in. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. This is telling us something very important about the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, even before we get to the events of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were, they were organized into five kings. They had all the advantages, but they still lost. You know why they lost? Because they were a bunch of cowards. It's a mean thing to say. I don't know them. I know that because I read on in, in the scripture, obviously, what they tried to do to the angels and to Lot and his family. But I know it here too. They had the advantage and then they ran. The world tells us that strong people and all that, they're so filled with courage and everything. The, the, most, the most sinful people are so filled with courage and things like that, but the reality is so much different. Their courage fails them too. They aren't fit to fight a war. They're only fit to make victims. And that gets us to verses 11 and 12 with Lot. Verse 11 and 12. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the four kings, they defeat the five, and then they, then they go and raid Sodom and Gomorrah, those cities, and they take everything they can. They don't destroy it like they do some of the other kingdoms, but they take everything they have, Sodom and Gomorrah, and all of their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram, uh, the son of Abram's brother, who was, all, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Verse 11, we see the consequences of the first war and of losing that first war. The enemy takes all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions. When nations go to war, it's always the innocent that pay the heaviest of prices. They may not have raised, they may not have raised these armies, to the, these cities to the ground, but they are not going to continue very well after this either. Instead of a complete, of a complete total war, they, um, complete total war they, um, it's basically a layup. They just raid the place. In the ancient world, most battles were basically glorified armed robbery. And we see here with Lot. Last time we read about Lot was in chapter, chapter 13, verse 12. Um, and he was not inside Sodom at that point. He moved his tent close to the city of Sodom. But now he's inside. Last time I told you, don't move your tent close to Sodom. You know why? Because it's only a matter of time before you live, you're living in Sodom. If you want to get so close to sin and see, try to walk that line between sin and righteousness, 
you're going to camp inside eventually. Why? Because eventually you move into Sodom and Gomorrah. Their problems, their temptations, their wickedness of that place becomes part of your life. In the New Testament, in Galatians 6, it says if somebody, if a brother is caught in a sin, you know who should go restore them? Not just anybody. A spiritual brother and sister should go restore them. And they should be cautious and gentle. Why? Because they might fall into the same pattern of sin. And you get that? We're not talking about people who have artillery, artillery motives and things like that who are wicked in heart. No, no. Those who are spiritual should watch themselves because it's easy to fall into the same kind of sin. Have some respect for the power of God in your life. You are not righteous because you try hard. Can I say that again? You are not righteous because you try hard, but because of the imputed righteousness of God himself and the work of the Holy Spirit. In the moment we start trying to walk out in the flesh, where, oh, I'm going to go into this situation, I'm going to save these poor people, you'll find yourself in the same situation they're in. Lot camps by Sodom, but it's only a matter of time before he's living inside of Sodom. Now Sodom's problems are his problems. I want to remind you that the New Testament says Lot was a righteous man. But righteousness does not necessarily mean wisdom. Lot has wealth. Maybe you're wondering, why did they take Lot? Did they take everybody? I don't know if they took everybody, but I know they took Lot because Lot was wealthy. In the last chapter, it said so. He was so wealthy to the point him and Abram couldn't, the land couldn't sustain both of them. So once again, notorious B.I.G., more money, more problems. You sure you want to be rich? There's all kinds of problems that you don't deal with that you would if you did. Lot's plight in verse 12. Lot's in a bad situation here. He has lost all of his possessions. Worse than losing all of his possessions, he's lost his freedom. He's now captive, about to be sold as a slave. Worse than that, his wife, his children, and the people who count on him are in the same spot. Being a leader doesn't mean means that you do not have the luxury for self-pity. Being a leader means you don't have the luxury of self-pity. You have a responsibility. You can't quit. Turn of the last century, I've used this illustration many times. I'm going to use it a lot more. That of Ernest Shackleton. Those of you who don't, maybe don't know this story, turn of the last century, 1908, he takes an expedition to Antarctica. Antarctica. And the idea was to go from one end to the other of Antarctica using dog sleds. He doesn't get that far. They're shipwrecked for two years in Antarctica. If you today, with all of your modern conveniences, if you're shipwrecked in Antarctica, I'm just going to do your funeral. Two years, they survive. They even get to this island called Elephant Island, which is relatively safe, but they know they need rescue. So a few of them get on a boat, including Ernest Shackleton, the leader of the expedition, and they then travel. They go across the worst stretch of ocean on this planet in a little boat. They get to this place called North Georgia Island, and now they have to cross North Georgia Island. That's a feat that won't be done for another 50 years. And those people have all kinds of equipment, food. They're starving they don't have the equipment they need. And so they're going up these hills and they are freezing and they get to a point where they might be even freezing to death and they like slide down the hill. It's a really fun story. But there's all these parts and he says that we were about to fall asleep, but we couldn't. I couldn't. Because I knew that when you are hungry and you are cold, this hungry, this cold, if you fall asleep, you die. 
we didn't have the luxury to die. Which blows my mind. Actually, that's what the, the person who wrote the book talking about it, is that they didn't have the luxury to die because there's 22 men who are depending on them back at Elephant Isle. Lot's plight is so bad because he can't do anything. He's completely, he's completely at the mercy of wicked men. He is in desperate need of deliverance, but who can help him? The biggest powers around him in the physical had already tried and they lost miserably. Who can save Lot? Good thing for Lot is Lot is blessed. His uncle is the friend of God. And one plus God is a majority. Lot may not be wise, but he has, he may not be wise. He may have quarreled with his uncle. He may have even taken the best land and not left any for his uncle, but Lot is still family. Where the others see a huge army that for, so far has been unbeaten, his uncle Abraham just sees his nephew in need to be saved. In verses 13 through 17, Abram takes an active role in this war. Or you could even say it's a second war. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew. Once again, Hebrew means to pass over. He was known as a stranger in a strange land. Who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite's brother of Iskul and of Aner. These were his ally, the allies of Abram. The report. The report. Before we get into what Abraham does here, I want you to take notice of the Holy Spirit's work in Abram's life. Sometimes we like to restrict the idea of somebody being saved to just like a single moment in time, but the Holy Spirit's been at work their whole life. He's been doing work you could never even imagine that you can't do. Some people think, oh, I'm going to argue this person in the kingdom. Yeah, right. You can crush them in the, in the discussion, in the debate. You can get them to agree with everything, but they're not going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. God has been, we get to see this in slow motion here with Abram because Abram has made mistakes so far, but now he is progressing. He's not trusting in himself, he's trusting in the Lord. We actually won't see that until the end of this chapter, but I just want you to know that chapter 15, verse 6 is coming, where it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In the New Testament, that was shorthand for being saved by faith alone. So we have the report here in verse 13. Abram is living by the oaks of Mamre. He is living the day-to-day -day life of obedience that God has called us all to. That should be the normal thing in our life, is just obedience. Just doing what God has asked us to do. You're not called to do great things every single day. You're just called to live in obedience. Some people worry about that a lot. They're like, okay, am I, am I living up to the potential that God has for me? Just live obediently and God will put things in your life. And you will, you will develop the tools between the oaks of Mamre that will, that will help you in the battle. I am sure his life is filled with the same kind of routines yours and mine is. Eating, sleeping, taking care of children, working to make a better future. Then comes a report from one who has escaped this battle. And I bet everybody knows what that's like. Everything in your life is going fine. It's going normal. Nothing bad, nothing good. It's just... You go to work, you go to sleep, you take care of what you need to take care of, then all of a sudden you get a call and your world stops. The doctor wants to take a look at that lump you found. That loved one just got into an accident. 
When me and my wife were married, I was, um, at one point in time, I'm working overnight shifts at Target. And because I was working overnight shifts, um, I would sleep during the day. And I had a friend who just didn't get the hint and kept texting me, Jeff Williams, um, while I'm trying to sleep. So I turned my phone off. And one of these days, because I, you know, nothing really happened during this time. It was just kind of like, in my mind, it's a waiting time. And so nothing, I wasn't really expecting anything. So my phone was off, and then all of a sudden I wake up because I hear this. And I'm like, oh, you know, you're in your days. I had like three hours of sleep, so I'm, I'm waddling downstairs, and I open up the door, and it's my, um, it's my sister-in-law's friend's dad. It's the guy who took pictures at our wedding. And he tells me, Something's happened. Becca collapsed at work and she's in the hospital in the emergency room. I had plans for the rest of the day of what I would do when I needed to work. All of a sudden, I couldn't care less. They can go ahead and fire me because this is more important. All of a sudden, this happens. You get the call. You get that knock at the door and your life stops. All of a sudden, whatever you were planning to do gets put on hold until this, hap- until this gets handled. And what you have developed between the oaks of the memory, of memory is what will sustain you during this time. We see Nehemiah further on in the Old Testament. He's a cupbearer to a foreign king. And he's told a report that the gates of the city were in shambles. And he weeps, weeps and he mourns. And the king sees him weeping and mourning and asks, what can I do? We see so many other times in the scriptures um, of people, they go about their normal life and all of a sudden something happens and it changes the whole aspect, the outlook that they are currently going through. When you get the knock on the door, when you get the call, what is, your, what is the reaction you have? That, that report changes your plans. It changed Abraham's plan. You see, Abraham doesn't, he's not involved in this war even though it's happening all around him. Sometime on your own, you can um, look at, he has the, we have the number of cities on here, and you can just pull up a map of that. You can see this is happening all around him. He knows it's happening. It's been going on for 12 years in the nation he's in. I mean, not the nation, in the land he's in. 12 years, but he doesn't get involved. Why doesn't he get involved? It wasn't just some summer event. The four kings were running roughshod over all these cities in the land. He was living there for 12 years before this, when this was all going on. So why didn't he act sooner? Simply put, it wasn't any of his business. Proverbs 26, 17 is a fantastic word for so many. Whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. I like that. Of course, when we think of dogs, we're thinking of like our dogs. Okay, their dogs are a lot more wild. But even if you have a tame dog, why don't you try this sometime? You're walking around, you see a dog passing by, grab him by the ears and shake him. See what happens. <laughs> you have so many people, they want, to make, they want to be in everybody's business. And they're like, I can't believe they're so angry with me. Well, mind your own business. It's none of yours. I said before, there's no good guys in this conflict. We don't even know if Abram knows that Lot has moved into Sodom. But either way, it wasn't his fight until the kings made it his fight. Now it's a matter of protecting his family. In verse 14, we see that Abram's being prepared. So let me say to you, be prepared. 
You're probably thinking of that song from Lion King right now, but we're going to move on. When Abram heard this, um, heard that his kinsmen, kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He was prepared for this. He's a man of peace, but he's prepared. Thus far in the biblical record, we haven't seen Abram ever get into a fight, but he was prepared to. He has allies. He has fighting men. He has intelligence on the enemy. He has trained a force of 318 men. I mean, that's the original 300, right? We got the 300 Spartans way before that. We have the 300 under Abram that he has, he has trained himself and he has armed. You know, we talked about last week about how Abram, he was rich. Sometimes in like movies, everybody seems like they're just like starving beggar waiting to be victimized. He was rich. He was prepared for this. He had 318 men born in his house that he trained and equipped. This was the verse 300. Just because you are a person of peace doesn't mean you shouldn't be prepared for war. A person who is incapable of violence, for that person not to be violent, that's not a virtue. But the person who is capable of great violence to be self-controlled, that is great virtue. Here is the secret weapon Abraham has. In addition to all of these things, and little do we know just yet, we're going to have to go to the end of the chapter to realize this, he's been praying the whole time. And his ally is the Lord. He has certain other allies. He has the 318 men, but he has the Lord on his side. We don't, we don't find this out until the king of Sodom, so this is spoiler alert, but the king of Sodom offers him spoils of the battle. And Abram tells him that I have lifted my hand to the Lord that I would not take even a strap of a sandal from you. He'd been praying this whole time. He had planned for victory. He believed victory, not only possible, probable, and he was preparing his heart before this would ever happen. Verse 15, we see Abram, he's a military genius. Verse 15, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to um, Hobath, north of Damascus. You know what I think is very frustrating when I see movies about um, biblical events, especially Old Testament, is that they portray them like they're victims waiting to be victimized. But Abram is not a victim. He's not in his little compound, dancing around, planting flowers. He's a military genius. In fact, many of the things we just read here are things our special forces do today. They don't all gather together and attack the greater force of the enemy. They split into little fire teams, create confusion, attack at night. Use your advantages against their disadvantages. Abram is using his advantages over his enemy's disadvantages. They were not prepared for the war to continue, but he was prepared. They portray, once again, these movies portray them as victim, victims waiting to be victimized, but Abraham is not a victim in his little compound, just hoping things go right. He's a military genius. He has, such a, he has a much smaller force. By how much, we don't know. But he divides them and attacks by night. He plans for victory too. We will see that when he is offered the spoils of war, that this, when he's offered the spoils of war, he refuses them because he does not want the blessings of the world as much as he wants the blessings of the Lord. This is advanced tactics in all, in all degrees. He chases them off even from the biblical map. He chases them so far north that we, like, the biblical maps don't even record where that's at. That's why he said north of Damascus. It's just very far away. He's also, once again, he's prepared for victory. 
because he's ready that when the spoils come that he would, not accept the, he would not accept the wealth. Now, once again, I said before at the very beginning, if Abraham wants money and he wants land, this is his opportunity. He, not Sodom, not Gomorrah, not these five kings have defeated the four kings. Do you have land who's now undefended, Sodom, Gomorrah. So if he wants land in the promised land, he can take it right now by his own strength, but he refuses to rely on his strength right now. He's going to rely on the Lord's strength. The Lord said he would give, and he will wait on the Lord and renew his strength and fly upon wings like eagles. He drives them off the map. In verse 16, we see him. He is now, this is his goal, verse 16. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the woman and the people. David Gusick says this. We may see a story in the account of Abram's rescue of Lot. We were those often sin and shame and rescued by one who has left his safety and happiness, our kinsman redeemer, went to great trouble and distance and with his courage and daring defeated the mighty enemy and has put us, that had put us in bondage and he took all the enemy's spoil. You know, superhero movies are starting to lose their grip on this culture and I think I know why. And they, they were hot in 2010s, right? And now, like, they're losing money. What's going on? Let me tell you what's going on. They're, they're losing the plot of the greater narrative. You know what the greater narrative is? Is that I, once again, it's exactly what I just read here. I, by my own action, am in a bad spot. The enemy has dominion over me, so I need somebody to come and save me. And that's what superhero movies used to be about. Now they're doing all kinds of weird stuff. I don't even know what half the stuff they're doing is. They've lost the plot. They've lost the connection to the great story that God is weaving throughout the world. Because when stories brush on those, they become great stories. There is a meta-narrative that is in the heart of every person that speaks of one who finds us in our broken and weak state, unable to rescue ourselves, who then rescues us. Are you fighting a war today? Do you have a war on the horizon or you have come, just come from a battle? Remember, the battle belongs to the Lord. So convinced of this, the man named Melchizedek, who is a high priest of God, blesses Abram because he sees God's hand on him during this battle. Many generations after this time, there will be a shepherd boy who will go to this battle and he'll see this huge giant of a man harassing the people of Israel and he'll be filled with righteous fury and he will stare this guy down and he will tell him, my God does not save by the things of this world. He's not saved by sword or by spear. But the battle belongs to the Lord. King David then kills the giants. Not because of his own martial prowess, but because of the blessing of God. The battle belongs to the Lord. You're facing something today? Stop trying to face it in your own strength. You won't win. The battle belongs to the Lord. Generations after David kills Goliath, there will be a descendant of David who will be king named Jehoshaphat. There will be three armies at his door and he will tell his people who are freaking out because they cannot see victory from this point. He'll tell them, do not be afraid and no, not be dismayed at this great horde for the battle is not yours but God's. I see so much in like 
pastor's circles, the pastor's freaking out. They're like, we're losing our grip on society. People are stopping, stop coming to church and all these things. And they're like, is this the end of Christendom in America? And I'm like, no. no. He said he'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen. What are you so worried about? The battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. You're just asked to stand. You're just asked to worship. The reason why you're so filled with anxiety because you think the battle is up to you. You think unless I do something wise or intelligent, then the battle is going to be lost. No, the battle is the Lord's. And it's with you personally as well. You got something going on right now, a battle that's too mighty for you. Remember, the battle is the Lord's. And no matter what happens, you'll be safe in his hands. Worship team, would you come up at this time? As we reflect... On the scripture today, I want to bring a point I made last, last week. Do not move your tent close to Sodom. Do not move into Sodom. What I mean by that is don't look to see how close you can get to sin without being in sin. Don't go to the things you know that make your conscience scream out against you. It will not, it will not give you peace. It will not give you happiness. Your, your problems will become their problems. Their problems will become your problems. The battle belongs to the Lord. Do you have a battle on the horizon? Are you in a battle? Well, you are, whether you like it or not. The enemy will use the people in your life that are closest to you to attack you. But I want you to remind you today that the battle is the Lord's. I want you to rest in that. Maybe some of you have family members and they're down your throat. You're like, what is, this, what is this about? Like, as you become closer to Jesus Christ, all of a sudden you have people in your family and they are being antagonistic against you, enemies against you. The battle belongs to the Lord. He cares more about them than you do. Hear me. He cares more about them than you do. You're distressed. You're weeping over them. He's weeping over them. And the victory will be his because our true enemy is not a person it's the devil and his angels. It's the culture of this world. And it's our own sinful nature. The battle is the Lord's. So who are you trusting in for victory? Are you trusting in yourself? Maybe if I just have the right words, if I do this, then that really will make a change. Or are you trusting in the Lord? Or are you doing what Ephesians tells us? When we've done everything to stand, stand firm with the armor of God. You have a lot at stake. Your family, your life, your soul. But the battle belongs to the Lord. Worship team, would you lead us in our last song? It's during this time that we get our chance to reflect on the message, to reflect on what God is speaking to you today. Some of you just need to rest in this. Some of you, you are, you're between the oaks right now, and you need to develop the character in the oaks that will help you in the battle. Day-to-day obedience day-to-day resting in the Lord so that you are ready when you get the call and it's the worst type of news. And some pastors will preach to you as if nothing bad will ever happen in your life if you're faithful to the Lord. That's not true. No person who's ever lived has lived that. The apostles, all of them besides one, die bad. I mean, I don't mean they get sick or they get hit by a camel. They die badly. And the one who doesn't die who dies of natural consequences, got boiled in oil and exiled to some island. But they had such hope that this world could not touch. Hebrews 11 says that the world didn't deserve them. It doesn't deserve you either. So maybe it's just resting, or maybe 
Maybe you've been trusting in yourself. You've been trusting in everything else other than the Lord. And you need to rest in him today and know that the battle belongs to the Lord. To lay your anxieties at his feet because he really does care for you. Sometimes we say that and then we get into the place, we get the phone call and we're freaking out, but cast your cares on him. He cares on you. He cares for you. Take his burden and his light. His yoke is easy. And the battle belongs to the Lord. Worship team, would you lead us in this last song? Thank you very much.